This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Covering setting scenes. Sonic Attacks Revisited. Your Fall Freezer. And Jacques Vallée. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we got our dice, we got our pencils, we got our graph paper. We got our Cambridge Medieval History Volume 7. Oh, good. Beloved Patreon backer John Scheib has asked a question that tickles the very warmth of my heart by saying, when starting with Earth, and bless you, John Scheib, for starting with Earth, what's the best method for covering the seams when you modify areas? For example, if I run a Dark Ages England game that has Tirnanog in it as an active fairy power, how do you suggest blending that into the historical power bases? Robin, when you start with Earth, do you uh, alter it? I mean, I guess you alter it literarily if you're doing King and Yellow stuff. Right. So, so the technique is you know the nerd material that you're going to be introducing into history, and then as you do your research... You are not only, uh, uh, you're researching, uh, in this case, uh, Dark Ages England. And as you're looking at all of the, uh, actual things and places and people and movements that existed and doing your research on that, you are looking for things to highlight that reference the nerd stuff. So when researching Dream Hands of Paris and reading all the biographies of the different surrealists, you will come across something like, for example, Jean Cocteau writes a children's book about a tentacled entity. Oh. That's time to give that a good old highlight there and make sure that you uh, bring that in as the thing that is the focus that uh, connects your uh, Cthulhu to your Surrealists. Or uh, you're looking at Tristan Zara and you find, oh, he spent better part of a year hiding in a closet from an, an unknown disembodied entity. I guess that's the thing I need to circle. And again, you give that the big old circle. So you're, you have, in this example, you would have Tirnanog in mind, and then you would do your research into uh, your whatever uh, year you select what are in uh, Dark Ages England. And then you would start to, when you uh, write up uh, and 
what write-up means in this context is it's presumably your own game rather than a product that you're preparing for a publication. In your notes on that, you make sure that the whatever you do to treat the, the historical material, the main filter, the main way in is the nerd trope thing that you found. So in this case, the, the, the Tiernanog element. And uh, can I assume that's roughly how you proceed as well? Yeah. The other component of it, though, is to decide ahead of time what sort of a game you're planning to run. Are you planning to run, for example, as in Dreamhounds of, of Paris, a game in which the surface of history seems normal to all but the player characters. And so the player characters investigate Jean Cocteau and discover that he wrote a, a tentacle children's book. Their response is not, oh, just a prefigurement of beloved uh, podcaster Kenneth Height. Their response is, aha, Cthulhu cult, and and dive in. But historians later on writing about Jean Cocteau don't have a book called Cocteau and Cthulhu, although that would be a great book. But if you're planning a, a more... um higher unreality game, I don't want to say higher fantasy game, because it might be horror, uh, in which Tiernanog is a known and chronicled participant in the activities of mankind in the same way that uh, the Vikings or Scotland or whoever uh, are participating in the rough and tumble of Dark Ages England, then you are determining what sort of story you're telling. Are you doing the Viking invasions, but with fairies? Uh, instead, or with fairies also, where are your Tiernanog? Uh, are they in the Sea of the West, uh, in the Irish Sea, where they're supposed to be? Uh, does it work better for your story if they're off the North Sea, like the Vikings are? And so you are deciding what exactly your feel is, your... Your, your, your uh, reality level, basically. Your reality level, and how you would describe it, not just to your players, but to interested strangers on the internet. And so it's if it's a secret history game, then Robin's method, and which is my method, is basically the method. You do the research and you find, oh, look at that. This this king of Mercia claimed to have, um, uh, that his great-grandfather uh, married a mermaid. And you're like, okay, that's a Tiernanog story. Or you look at all the legitimate fairy stories that come out of England and you see how many of them you can track all the way back to to Dark Ages times or even pretend to track. Because again, bad research makes great gaming. Um, if it's somebody <laughs> else's bad research, you should do good research. Just stay in the habit. Yes, you should know the difference between make them up and, and not. Right. And, and so the, the question is, what, what feel are you going for? And so if you are uh, going for a bigger feel or one that is a more visibly alternate history, then you can decide where Tiernanog should fit either by their own internal logic. Uh, they're in the West. The Vikings are in the East. Obviously, the Vikings and the fairies are allied. Uh, the Vikings are pagan. The fairies fear church bells. Obviously, the Vikings and the fairies should ally. Or you can change it up if you want the uh, Vikings and fairies to be enemies for some reason. Then you move Tiernanog into a relationship with the Heptarchy because all of them turned out to have got, you know, chalk uh, lines on the, in, in the um, uh, landscape that the fairies want protected, et cetera, et cetera. And here come the Vikings uh, with their, with their boorish ways. And worst of all, their plenitude of iron weapons. And it's all the, all the rude uh, bloody iron that, that angers Tiernanog or the Vikings uh, since they ignore the sea basically in their, in, in their religious practices, the Tiernanog just takes it as an affront that the Vikings don't throw seven people overboard every time they go out on the ocean. 
And uh, you never hear the Anglo-Saxons doing that because they stay in their pens the way they're supposed to. And so Tyrion and Og is responding because they think of uh, the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy as their as their pets, the, the you know, their, their locals who've paid protection and, and gotten the deal. And so they're obliged to defend them against Vikings. So you, you look at the biggest things in your world, in this case, the Viking invasions and to a lesser extent, the rise of Alfred the Great in Christianity. And you say, uh, how are these playing off? How do I want them to play off my, uh, my third force, my alternate history, my other element? And, that is a decision that you have to make aesthetically because as I just demonstrated, you can logically argue for whichever you've decided you want. So decide which one you want anyway, and then buttress it uh, by arguing backwards. Right. And there's even a further step back to take before you do all of that, which is what is the correctivity? Who are the player characters and what are they doing? Because what the way that you're going to want to uh, present that and the way that you're going to determine what choices seem cool depend on who the characters are. So uh, if they are the fairies, you want to make the Vikings very scary. And, uh, you know, you want to emphasize the iron weapons angle. If your characters are Vikings, you want the fairies to be very scary and emphasize the, you are our pets and we're throwing you into the sea. So your those creative decisions are not going to be occurring in a vacuum, but rather they are the setup for the story that you want to tell. So you want to have a sense of what the initial narrative challenge is to the uh, characters and who they are. Are they the uh, the Anglo-Saxons? In which case, are they playing those two sides off each other? Are they both really scary? Who's the antagonist? Who's the hero? And uh, what kind of uh, tale do you want to tell? Is it intrigue? In which case you want to, you know, you might want to lean more toward the sort of secret uh, history sort of uh, side of things where it might be a fun surprise partway through for the human characters to discover that some of the people operating among them are actually from Tirnanog, or do you uh, want to make it this sort of uh, lots of uh, fighting and action and F-20 style stuff, in which case, you know, maybe uh, they the characters are sort of uh, freebooters who might come from any three, they're outcasts, they might be a ragtag group from any of those groups sort of fused together in an unlikely motley gang of people. And uh, that would allow them to bounce from uh, the Vikings to the Saxons and to the Tirnanog. And so you're looking at what you want to have happen in play and making your other decisions about what the reality level is and uh, what the viewpoint is based on that. Right. And then once you've sort of decided those things, you can go through the research and, as Robin says, buff up the things that match the game you already want to run. So if you're thinking, well, Dark Ages England was basically a, a low treasure D&D setting anyway, that's what I'm going to play is straight up F20, then you're going to want to look for not just fairy stories, but monster stories and anywhere that might or might not have had a cave or a tunnel or a dungeon. Um, you're going to play up Beowulf, maybe, and the pagan nature or the pagan uh, subcrust of, of the Saxon kingdoms that's always threatening to pop out. Or maybe one of the reasons that the fairies are still alive and, are, and running uh, parts of England is that Christianity got bounced back into Roman country. And so across the channel, everyone's becoming Christian and uh, figuring out how to drive fairies away with church bells. But here in good old Saxon England, we're all F-20 pagans worshiping Tunor and Tiwaz and the King of the Fairies 
and having a grand old time with that. And so then you would maybe dig into a, a book about Anglo-Saxon paganism and, and see what you could do and say, oh, that's a, that's a particularly holy spot. So that's where we'll you know, have, you know, our band of, um, uh, bold, uh, warrior clerics of Tiwas and they will, you know, be a, a force in the land. And over there is where, you know, Alfred the, the Great is, is building his power base. So that's where there's an ambitious human lord who will stop at nothing to extend, uh, Wessex or whatever it is. Um, and you will be able to take, you know, regular aspects of history, especially once you've done it for a bit and just sort of, uh, like tilt them until they glitter in the, uh, precise sunbeam that your game intends to generate. And that's where, and that's how you put them into the mosaic of your game world. Uh, don't be concerned that, you know, later scholars have determined that, oh, the Vikings were just, you know, peaceable goofs who came along and traded for grain and, and, um, uh, they're just driven by hunger. Let's all understand the Vikings. If, if your game needs the Vikings to be the fury of the North and the vengeance of God and all the other things the Vikings were called by, oh, I don't know, eyewitnesses on the ground, then, um, uh, go ahead and make your Vikings tear up. Give them horned hats if, if it's important to you. Maybe Vikings with horned helmets are, Vikings signaling that they are, um, uh, they're paladins or something. They've learned that the, that the horned hats are powerful against, uh, against fairies. So yeah, yeah. In the, this universe, they need them. They're not going to wait for Wagner to, to put those on. Exactly. And so you can, you, you can lean as far into the legend or the Victorian mediocre history as you need to, because the job of your game is to entertain at the table, not necessarily to reflect historical consensus because historical consensus changes a lot. Whereas fun is eternal. It's an eternal principle. Right. And if you're looking for uh, a game where uh, the characters are all the heroes of one of these three groups, you pick a moment when that group is most beleaguered and in need of uh, heroing. heroing. <laughs> and so uh, you're picking a time when the antagonist group seems to be most on the ascendant, but yet perhaps while you're doing your research, you might find a, a turning point uh, that the uh, your characters can uh, help to uh, actually turn and be the forefront uh, characters of. And so if you can look for a historic event where the power shifts, you might sort of seize on that and then do a fantastical uh, version of that with uh, more fighting and, and intrigue and so forth. And if it is all more sort of realistically scaled uh, politics in which the denizens of Tirunanag seem mostly sort of uh, human. They're just a, a political force that didn't exist in this world, but they've just got sort of low magic around them. Uh, then you're looking for the uh, moments of sort of um, maximum uh, confusion and backstabbery where they're the most, uh, where the powers are sort of balanced against each other and one little feint in one direction can be a big deal. So you're also sort of honing in on what you think is your kind of pivotal moment that will bring about the sort of drama that you uh, want to create. Because uh, a period in history where all of the forces are constantly at war implies one sort of uh, set of stories for the characters in which they are, spoiler, getting in a bunch of wars, uh, one in which there is a delicate balance of power that nobody wants to upset too much is one for intrigue and sneaking around. And maybe uh, when you find a turning point, you'll be able to flip it from one style uh, into the other. From In order to make things interesting, you probably want to start out with the intrigue and the delicate balance and move into the war. That's the way things usually escalate, but uh, mm -hmm. maybe you could be tricky and turn it around and do it the other way. 
Yeah, if you, especially if you can imagine that in your version of things, the presence of Tirnanog alters the, the Danish, uh, the, the great Danish invasion or something, or the rise of Alfred, you can really make your characters the linchpins because there is no way to historically say how would the presence of Tirnanog have affected the rise of Alfred the Great. Um, it's dealer's choice and you're the dealer. So, you know, you can, not just look for those moments. You can orchestrate those moments. You can say, well, yeah, Alfred is going to bring Christianity to, to all the Anglo-Saxons. There's no stopping that. Unless, of course, there's a giant fairy power that is very into paganism and maybe they'd joined up with the Danes at X battle. Then Alfred could have been stopped and, and left into a, either a delicate balance of power in the way that, that we're talking about. Uh, for the intrigue games, or that that's the point that you're attempting to get all of your player characters to the battle of three armies or whatever you want to call it. And then let the player characters decide who wins. Uh, that's, that's a good reward is to get the player characters, uh, owed favors by, uh, various power players in the world. Because what that also means is that other various power players in the world are mad as hens about it and are going to, uh, uh, do the player characters dirt just because they can which is, again, great storytelling. Right, because just introducing the idea that heroic player characters are important in this world is a deviation from history, probably. Yeah, I mean, unless you're literally playing Beowulf or something. Yes, that well-known historical uh, document, Beowulf. I can't believe we got a Beowulf truther here. <laughs> <laughs> Grendel was just a disaffected employee. The uh, thing to do when you're looking at all of the major figures in the slice of history that you've chosen to look at is to ask yourself, what does this king, what does this uh, Jarl, uh, what does this uh, fairy princess, what do they need from the player characters? How, what is that interaction going to be? And how are you going to activate them so that their meeting is not just a, oh yeah, you have dinner with the Jarl and then you go on your way. Oh, you met an important historical figure, but what do they want from you? What uh, what plot hook do they set in front of you uh, along with the Ludafisk? Um, and you should always take the plot hook out of the Ludafisk be before you put the lie in. Yeah, way. right. I was going to say that if, that's an excellent way to get the player characters to pick the plot hook is to have Ludafisk <laughs> be the other option. Literally, the, the, the hook is in them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I guess once Ludafisk is on the table, Robin, our job as uh, podcasters is to back slowly away from the table <laughs> back and away sneak from into the another hut without ever touching it. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves
Elves, the Threats of Malice, the Drowfort, and the Four Kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun, Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. The retinal scan uh, and the background check tell you that you've once again stepped into the trade craft hut. And uh, Ken, we have so much material to fit into this hut. Uh, it's going to be a big challenge. Uh, and this is a sequel hut as well. When, when we put the hut in way back in the day, we thought it would just be a standard little hut. Now it's... It's practically a split-level uh, McMansion of a hut. This this hut has grown. And so uh, what we're going to talk about is we're going to update. So it looks like there's a lot more information about the uh, what we thought of uh, back in October of uh, 2017 as the sonic weapon attacks in Havana. That was episode 264, if you want to go back and uh, listen, give that a listen. And this was a case where embassy personnel, not uh, mostly in the U.S. embassy, but including some Canadians, uh, seemed to be targeted by some sort of sonic weapon attack. And in fact, in that segment, we sort of, I think, veered uh, toward accepting the veil out, which is that it was possibly sort of psychosocial in nature mm -hmm. or possibly maybe... Uh, sick building syndrome, but uh, Julie Ioffe, the uh, great journalist, uh, has a big piece in GQ magazine. Go and we actually have a link in the show notes for once and make sure you check out the article and click on <laughs> some ads. The, the temptation, there's so much material here. I, I want to really avoid the trap of just paraphrasing uh, her work. Uh, so we're going to try and make sure we add uh, lots of Ken and Robin special sauce to this, but there's just so much to cover, and it goes into so many different directions. There's so much so, stuff. Yeah. So also, yeah. if you notice that we're leaving a part of the buffalo unused, uh, Patreon backers, uh, let us know if there's something that we sort of touch on that you, we want to amplify later, because this is also a great story, mystery-directed weapon attack aside, just about looking about inside the CIA operations in Russia in essentially real time in a way that you wouldn't normally get that detail level now, but as institutions often do, they've blown their cover by trying to screw people out of their workman's comp. <laughs> and therefore, mm -hmm. <laughs> a former uh, high-level CIA uh, operative named Mark Polymeropoulos, and if I was to make up that name, my editor would check and make sure it's a real name, he has had to retire due to severe uh, uh, health problems as a result of apparently being attacked by a uh, Russian uh, directed energy weapon. And uh, he is just one of a number of people who have suffered that, but he's the one who's come forward with all sorts of juicy details of what's going on behind the scenes between CIA and Russia in an era where the CIA is very reluctant to uh, act on Russia or inform the commander-in-chief uh, about uh, what's uh, going on. So, Polymeropoulos was hit, uh, and this is known uh, now within uh, the CIA and State Department as getting hit. They, it happens enough there's a term for it. December uh, 2017 in Moscow. I hope not lulled into a false sense of security by our 2017 October uh, segment. Uh, he was uh, attacked in his hotel room in Moscow. In June 2018 in Guangzhou, a bunch of people were hit, including a diplomat uh, and his spouse. Uh, and 
They uh, went to the, uh, later when they began to suffer symptoms, they wound up at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is, uh, its neurological center is, is dealing with a bunch of these cases. They were later reattacked in Philadelphia. They moved to a hotel. They were attacked again. And at one point, they, in the middle of the night, they went into their children's room and found them, quote, moving in their sleep bizarrely and in unison. Uh, there's a case where uh, a CIA agent was attacked in spring of 2019 in Poland, and then later again, uh, that same target was attacked in the fall of, uh, of 2019 in Tbilisi. Uh, there's another incident where uh, diplomats were attacked in uh, Australia in 2019, and then uh, later in that same trip in Taiwan. And like I said, there's attacks even occurring now uh, within the U.S., including a White House staffer. Uh, Thanksgiving of 2019 uh, hit while uh, walking her dog in Arlington, uh, Virginia. So uh, this is some uh, some ster- some serious stuff. Ken, what was your first reaction when you started uh, pouring your way through all of this? I mean, my first reaction was that I mean, because as you say, we'd sort of bought the veil out. We'd thought it was it had a lot of similarities to other psychosocial micro panics, and uh, that the likelihood of uh, a, an acoustic weapon being capable of doing these things was sort of uh, off the table. I think at the time I'd mentioned the Soviet penchant for beaming microwaves at people. And it does look now like there is at least in, enough smoke and axial damage to cry a little bit of microwave fire that it does. It's not inconsistent anyway, with what we know about uh, directed microwave energy and that research as as I'm going through, I was thinking, is it microwaves or is it a, a system by which there's uh, some other environmental thing that uh, CIA guys use or are exposed to uh, when they're uh, confronting the Russians and the Chinese, apparently, and the Cubans, that creates these sorts of symptoms in some of the people, but not others of the people. And the parallel that was uh, really forefront in my mind was um, uh, Gulf War syndrome, as I'm reading this, which way back, you know, uh, in our first Gulf War in the 90s, uh, people were coming back and expressing headaches and dizziness and all kinds of other symptoms. And most people were saying, that's just PTSD. It's just taking new forms. And, you know, we should take it very seriously. It's PTSD, but it's not a, a, a new physical syndrome. And then more and more cases came up and the PTSD numbers begun to come in and they were actually lower than for most wars because I guess fighting a very, very fast, very, very victorious war is less traumatic than fighting one for decades in the jungle of Vietnam. Who knew? But anyway, the the PTSD numbers began to separate out from the other stuff. And then people started blaming depleted uranium munitions for causing radiological poisoning. And that was a big scare forever. And now it begins to look like it's actually the, or other people would say it was Iraqi chemical weapons. And now it's beginning to look like it's just a, an ongoing uh, toxic exposure, not just to possible radiation or possible Iraqi chemicals, but also to things like the inside of your hazmat suit uh, gives off, you know, weird vapors because it was built by the low bidder uh, in a military contract and other things like that. And other uh, sort of, what we would, if it happened to truckers, we would know exactly what it was. We'd say it's, it's workplace toxicity. Someone's, you know, parking near a super fun site or they're not keeping their engine maintained. And we'd know exactly what it was. But when it happens to the Gulf War guys, 
we don't immediately think, oh, the army is basically a big walking toxic dump in addition to everything else it is. Right. Uh, but this clearly is uh, a, a weapon. And right. as you as you alluded to, yeah. this sort of weapon has been uh, in the offing since the early 60s. The Soviets started uh, developing it in 61. Uh, they famously regularly bathed the U.S. embassy in Moscow with microwaves during the Cold War, which was uh, so common and so well known that people were, you know, always joking about the effect of this on their uh, uh, testicles. And but it looks like there's been a big advance. And of course, there uh, are other similar weapons being developed uh, elsewhere, including the uh, the U.S. had a similar program. And the current version of that is the active denial system uh, that notorious uh, pain ray that is extremely uh, ominous in terms of how it might be used in uh, quelling protests. And in fact, uh, somebody inquired, as, can we use our pain ray uh, this summer to use against uh, protesters in, in the U.S., which uh, ain't great. But in this case, it looks like there's a lot of evidence, first of all, of the actual harm being done. This isn't one of those uh, mystery syndromes where it's like there's a lot of symptoms. And in fact, uh, the first group to look into this, the neurologists at the University of Pennsylvania, noticed that almost everybody that they dealt with was different from people who reported sort of general toxic building syndrome uh, or, or what have you. And they ruled out being psychosocial in part because everybody was like denying the extent of their problems and was anxious to get back to work. And they, they were trying to not have the symptoms. That's that's what happens when you turn your uh, your microwave ray on on dedicated uh, CIA professionals. <laughs> on, on workaholics, yeah. They're, they're not a bunch of malingerers. Whatever else is wrong with the CIA? Got to get out there screwing things up again. <laughs> right. And so they were, uh, Paul Maropoulos was uh, diagnosed with occipital neuralgia, which is a condition resulting from uh, damage to a particular two nerves that run uh, from the base of the skull. A weird detail appears to be that the symptoms differ according to the skull shape of the victims, uh, which is something that's known even back from the more primitive microwave ray attack. And it just, it depends on how the rays bounce around your skull once they yep. go into your head. There's a, a 2018 paper in the uh, journal Neural Computation by Beatrice Gallom, and she says that it's uh, microwaves, others say it's too precise to be actually literally microwaves, but the fact that it's not microwaves doesn't mean it's not some other band of some uh, other band of energy. directed okay. energy. And so the National Academy of Sciences has then been assigned to uh, look into this and study it and then release a report to be suppressed. And <laughs> uh, they found that uh, an actual physical symptom, which is that the victim's white matter in their brains has been significantly diminished. Uh, the white Matter is the stuff that creates all the delicate neurological connections uh, using structures called axons. And uh, people's axons have been destroyed and your axons don't regenerate. And so... Yeah, the, the brain is divided into gloppy stuff and puffy stuff. And the uh, white matter is the puffy stuff. Yes, exactly. And that, that's the Ken and Robin detail that you've come here to, to, uh, to glean. Mm -hmm. um, and so some victims, they've just recovered. Uh, but others uh, are in wheelchairs or they're wearing... A weighted vest to correct valence, or they've just suffered debilitating uh, migraines. And in, in fact, one of the terms for this that, was, that the uh, University of Pennsylvania researchers came up for, with was the immaculate concussion, right? That mm -hmm. people <laughs> seem to have been concussed without having been physically struck. And that the concussion, unlike a regular concussion, which goes away after, you know, a, a matter of, of, of days or weeks, 
this one seems to keep going because it's a different sort of damage. Apparently, you know, it's again, it's you cook a potato from the outside. The inside is fine. You cook a potato from the inside, then the inside is cooked. And that's what microwaves do is that they penetrate the skull and act on the material inside. Unlike a bullet, let's say, that has to go through the skull before it does anything physically. Uh, Just as a side note. Having a Knights Black Agents NPC who shows up in a weighted vest because they've been attacked by, you know, uh, Russian microwaves or whatever, that's just a good character element that this guy, you know, that they're a workaholic, you know, that they're dangerous, you know, that the, uh, the Russians have a mad on for them. You, you know, a lot of details and they're just showing up in a weighted vest to, to keep themselves balanced upright while they, while they feed you data about vampires. That's right. That's just a great visual by itself over and above the rest of this. Yes. And, and the, the vampire is finding out about these attacks and going, man, that's harsh. Those, <laughs> that's, those, those that's Russians. Cool. And so there was at one point some question as to who was uh, responsible for this, because it turns out uh, there are a number of uh, nation states who have access or alleged access to this technology or something that sounds like that, including the Saudis, the Ukrainians. Possibly the Iranians were sold it by a, a Ukrainian dealer. So that's another Ninth Black Agents uh, plot hook. You can be showing up at the meet for the sale of the uh, directed energy weapon. The Chinese uh, supposedly uh, have access to it and possibly the Cubans if they were, if some sort of uh, a hardline Cuban group was uh, handed some of these weapons to make the preparatory experimental trouble in uh, Havana, which is something that could have happened. But it uh, turns out that it's it's pretty pretty clear from cell phone evidence uh, that there were uh, FSB officers at the sites of almost all of the attacks that I listed off at the top of the uh, episode. And you may be saying, but that's ridiculous. FSB agents wouldn't be carrying their personal cell phones with them, to which anyone who's studied the current FSB would note, them boys is sloppy. Well, I mean, also, there's there's a great website called Bellingcat that just sort of monitors the security state. And they are always posting, hey, look at this garbage obsec by someone in the CIA who ostensibly should know better or the NSA. Look at look at their daughter's Instagram is showing pictures of their desk or, or whatever it is. And so there's lots of bad obsec in the digital world. And the the so the Russians are, are, are not immune to that. I, I thought I saw in, in the article that it was the GRU, not the FSB. Uh, although it's uh, oh, you're right. It is, a difference it, it, is, it is GRU. Yeah. But again, part of it may be that people who use the devices underestimate how vulnerable it makes you to being tracked. And even if, you know, one part of the GRU's job is to just read Bellingcat and figure out how to track American agents, which, by the way, does not mean Bellingcat should shut down. It means American agents should stop screwing up. That that kind of intel doesn't get communicated into the field and a field agent who's job in especially in in the russian spy uh, agencies but in american as well is going to often be bureaucratically protected in some sense or uh there because of in in this case their connections uh to putin personally or to people close to putin make them fundamentally unfireable they'll just go on doing things i mean even mossad gets caught with their pants down once or twice and they are by far the most professional of the major intelligence agencies so certainly sloppy work uh, we would not accept that as a reason the CIA was not involved. You shouldn't accept it as a reason that the GRU is not involved. Again, I guess to stress, this is all still circumstantial. Other medical professionals 
cast a raised eyebrow or two at the University of Pennsylvania reports, but nobody's got a better theory. Nobody's got a better understanding. And we are beginning as, as your litany at the beginning uh, indicated to have a large number of cases. Now, of course you can say the same thing about UFO abductions, but uh, in this case, uh, these are people who are fairly trained observers in many cases. And in a lot of the cases are being stonewalled in a way that wouldn't make sense unless the CIA was trying to cover something up, right? I mean, if if they just had a sick headache, the CIA would either say, well, you're fired for being a malingerer, or they would take you to, you know, the the special wing of sick headache at uh, Walter Reed and say, get this guy's headache on sick. He's the the only man who understands Azerbaijan, and we've got to get him back into the field. I mean, that's... And and plus, there's cases where people's dogs are affected, and I don't think dogs get psychosocial... uh effects i mean actually dogs get psychosocial effects because they read off their owners but they don't get medically altered by psychosocial yes, effects. not to the point of vomiting blood right exactly and so the the sort of the circumstantial pattern does fit some sort of russian uh globally based operation probably also uh because i don't think the russians are wandering around hitting people in in guangzhou and I'll bet that uh, Taiwan is also considered a, a, an MSS province in the world of international espionage. So uh, probably the Russians and the Chinese both have the, the weapon and are using it uh, with gay abandon. Um, one of the questions that CIA analysts asked themselves and were initially resistant to the idea that this was the Russians is they're saying, well, I don't understand why why Putin would do such a thing. And I think that they are discounting the fact that uh, authoritarian rulers are often psychopaths Mm -hmm. who do things because they get a sadistic kick out of hurting people and breaking the rules. So I'm just, you know, a country game designer, but it seems like they're missing an obvious uh, part of that. Yes. This is, this is the downside of staffing an agent, an intelligence agency entirely from Yale university is the, (laughs) but, but we don't do that is not actually an operative uh, thing in the in the real world because you may have noticed there's all sorts of brazen acts of violence that Putin is obviously you know doing <laughs> yeah. everything but but cackling over right he's going to start leaving people you know um, uh, wearing t-shirts that said I was murdered by the FSB with polonium and all I got was this lousy t-shirt and it's like how how is this in the long term best interests of the Russian polity it's like oh uh, well <laughs> look at who you're dealing with mm-hmm. and. Uh, of course, the CIA has uh, uh, snapped back with a, a devastating uh, counterblow, uh, which is, believe it or not, people, uh, that uh, Gina Haspel, the head of the CIA, cut the high-level Russian counterparts off the official U.S. government Christmas card list, which apparently is a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal, and they're really upset about that. They were hurt. They, they were hurt, frankly, that anyone yeah. would, would do that. Whatever the Russian equivalent of Yale is, was saying, well, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, we, we put r- bounties on, on American soldiers in Afghanistan, but we would never not send a Christmas card. So the CIA investigators went into to Haspel and laid out their case. And according to uh, the GQ piece, uh, she did that spy movie staple, the uh, you're getting ahead of the evidence. I'm shutting your operation down speech. Uh, allegedly, she really hates the Russians and is looking forward to an opportunity to get back at them after she has a president who you're allowed to mention Russia in front of. I mean, Haspel did come out of the field. Um, she's the first field operative to serve as head of the CIA since Colby. Colby's uh, tenure was 
not necessarily an uh, unmarked bright spot, but it was better than some of the tenures to follow him, certainly. And she even used to run Russia House, the anti-Russia uh, segment of the of, of the CIA. So her roots are are about uh, screwing with the Russians. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of institutional nostalgia exists in the CIA for can't we just go back to screwing with the Russians because then we get posted in nice cities instead of, uh, you know, some uh, actually hard place in the Middle East where we have to meet people and know languages. Right. But the difference, apparently, according to uh, Paul Maropoulos, is that if you're working in the Middle East and you get a meeting with somebody who wants to kill you, you will get great hospitality. They'll be very polite. You'll serve tea. It'll be like the, you know, the part where you meet with Blofeld at the beginning and they're unfailingly polite. Whereas it ter- he was very surprised when he was transferred to anti-Russia operations when he met Russian counterparts in Moscow having a stupid meeting that everybody thought was useless. How rude they were to him, what dicks they were. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about Russian diplomats of the Tsar's era, but even during the Great Game, they were sort of truculent liars a lot of times. But I think the sort of just unthinking rudeness is is a is is a cultural affect that got very, very hammered this in by Zerzinski. like super calculated rudeness, though, because yeah, right. there's like a script and everything yeah. where you bring up the Japanese internment in World War II and mm-hmm. harangue them. And yep. it's part of the playbook where you yeah. you, you bully your adversary and put them off, off guard. Yeah. The, the, and, and again, that was that was standard. Uh, SO, that was SOP for the Soviets going all the way back to the 19 teens. Um, and so they're, they're on their old playbook and their old playbook, you know, certainly involved bathing the U.S. Embassy in microwaves in the 70s and hitting them with radi- uh, radiological uh, effects. So there was, you know, this is a distinction, I, I think, of a degree, but not of a kind, right? Uh, and uh, again, it isn't uh, assassination. They're, they're saying, well, we would never assassinate the Russians. It's like, this is literally the beat you up and get you off the field warning, except this one, because it has lingering medical effects that we can't cure actually works. I mean, Polymeropolis was as far as, you know, uh, the, the sort of puff piece in GQ, uh, he was sort of a, a hard charging Russell Crowe protagonist hero. And sure enough, the Russians took him off the field, but they didn't kill him. And so if the rule was, we don't kill the other side, the Russians are still doing that. They've just got a, a vastly, um, uh, more effective, uh, rough them up so that they stop the investigation method. And, and I guess the, the sort of the, the, the gameable quality of this over and above the, as you say, the insights into CIA personnel is the possibility of this being a template for another secret war. So you can imagine a world in which Paul Maropoulos has stumbled on the, the, the Russian vampire program and he, you know, comes back and he says, Look, um, uh, you know, we, we, we're miss- our agents are turning up missing blood and memories. They've got reports of people that had, you know, uh, psychotic strength and, uh, or, or no shadows or whatever else. You know, um, uh, bats have been seen at this, this, and this spot. And the CIA, you know, doesn't want to deal with vampires either because the president has possibly, you know, been bit or because, the CIA just doesn't believe in vampires. And this is exactly the way that that would be slow walked and moved off the grid. And so you can use this as a template for vampires or Cthulhu or any other sort of a uh, underlying mystery that that one brave Russell Crowe t- type agent has has uncovered at great physical cost to himself. And so now you, the player characters, 
must uh, continue his uh, his war against Kremlin Goetia or whatever it is. This isn't the Cold War. They discontinued the vampire program. Right. The president doesn't want to hear about that, but he does want a Pomeranian to drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't? They're, they're easily the most delicious of, of the small dogs. Right. But, you know, half an hour later, you just want another Pomeranian. Oh, but wait a minute, Ken. Uh, be- before we head out of here, there- there's one thing that I need to bring up that is possibly of uh, shattering consequence to this podcast. Something that will strike deep into the heart of our brand. You know what this story means, Ken? What does it mean, Robin? El- elliptin rays, they're real, Ken. Are real. And that means, I don't know what we do with the elliptini hut, because the elliptini hut is about the borderland between the real and the unreal. And the elliptin ray, Ken, is moving inexorably into the realm of the real. You know, forget I said anything. Let's move on. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast stocked with ingredients by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Oli Toivonen. Stephen Hammond. Derek Heimforth. Yadge from Edinburgh. And Darren Hennessy. Pots bubbling on the burner. The smells wafting out of the oven. We are entering a wintry segment of the food hut because we are entering a wintry segment of the world on the outside and it's roast season and it's time to start things that cook a long time not just because you uh, want to um, uh, eat them but also because you just want the kitchen to be hot and warm and smell good for hours at a time but in order to do that we have to have supplies robin and where do we keep our supplies? Not just in the pantry, but also in the freezer. And so you, and eventually me, uh, have ideas for what you can stock up now so that your long winter of uh, coronavirus-induced hibernation can be a tastier one than normal, right? Right. Uh, and for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, we acknowledge that uh, it, it's grilling season for you. So you'll yeah, have to go so back knock and, yourselves out. Yeah. Go and, and, and post on, about it on Instagram because that doesn't get older annoying. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because we never post our grilling season. We would never do that. No, we're decorous people. So yes, if if perhaps uh, here in the COVID-verse, you're looking to have a greater sense of preparation and illusory control over your life, <laughs> stocking your freezer is a great way to do that. And so uh, let's talk about things that you can spend a couple of afternoons prepping and then uh, feel every time that you use one of them, you will just the best part of this is you just feel so smart later when you're making use of one of uh, these things. And so let's start with the most obvious one first, which is prepare a whole bunch of caramelized onions, put them in little freezer bags and put them in your in your freezer. Uh, this brings us to the which we may have alluded to again, but hey, food, their topics are perennial. There's the great caramelized onion hoax, which is that almost any recipe from uh, the Internet or a cookbook will tell you. Take 15 minutes and caramelize some onions. Ken, what do we know about that? That is a tissue of lies, Robin. That is a feel-good happy talk yes. designed to buffalo people. I mean, I'm sure they, they meant it well. I'm sure they're like, oh, no, yeah, absolutely. This is great. Not a problem. Come on in. Be part of the cooking world. Well, when you lie to people, Robin, you drive them away from the cooking world. Yes. Uh, there is a uh, – so basically, caramelizing onions uh, takes about an hour if you do it on a uh, on, on the stovetop. And you're going to want to regularly uh, refresh it with uh, water so the onions don't scorch. Uh, right. Perhaps if you're feeling fancy, uh, you put in something other than water. Uh, but you're going beyond caramelized onions then into mm. uh, wine onions or even bourbon onions, which sounds extravagant. But, hey, this is self-care. Exactly. However, if you actually want to do almost perfect with one major exception, uh, caramelized onions... The Instant Pot, again, our regular perennial friend here recently on the, on the show, uh, can come to your rescue. Uh, it, it took me a long time to get Instant Pot caramelized onions right. Uh, what I finally realized I was doing incorrectly is I just wasn't making enough onions all at once. Right. So uh, you will get uh, something that is a little more like an onion reduction or an onion paste in texture. That's the one big difference. But you just chop up a whole bunch of onions. You don't even need to chop them finely. Like you don't want to chop them finely. Uh, throw in a little bit of baking soda to get that um, mailard reaction. Unlike almost every other thing you do in the Instant Pot, you don't add any water. And then it will take you about 12 minutes to get a big right. giant carpet of uh, delicious uh, caramelized onions that will have a slightly different texture than if you took a much more laborious process on the top of the stove. Um, but, but otherwise they're going into the freezer. So they're going to have a different texture, no matter what happened. Exactly. They, they will emerge from the freezer, uh, not as distinct little bits of onion, but as a, uh, just as delicious sort of onion, uh, paste or sauce that you can contribute through. Perhaps. Uh, so Ken, what's your uh, next thing that you're going to, uh, put in the freezer? Um, well, I mean, I, again, we're talking about sort of the obvious, the groundwork. If you have not made stock yet, well, you're starting to roast things. And if you roast something with a bone in it, you can make stock. Boxed stock, the standalone stock, is better than it used to be, by far better than the canned stock ever was, I think. But there's no substitute for making it yourself because that's better than uh, boxed stock. I mean, no, the substitute is keep it in a box. But if you want super tasty stock for your soups or your stews or whatever, and you're roasting anyway, you might as well. And that's just a matter of you, uh, you've roasted a chicken. You take the bones, you take the pieces of wing you didn't eat, you take the, the back and the giblets and whatnot that you didn't use, you toss them in the, in, in the bag and, and, um, uh, and freeze them up. Once you have, you know, four or five chickens or two or three roast beefs amount of bones, then you toss those into the oven 
roast it up uh, super hot for about 20 minutes, like 500 degrees at 20 minutes to get some char and some deepening of flavor. And then into the stock pot with water and uh, maybe some vegetables and certainly some parsley and peppercorns and whatnot, if, if you want to be fancy, some garlic. And then uh, just simmer it along until all the flavors come out of the bones and into the water, strain it, put it in the in the tub and put the tubs in the freezer. And then you've got stock that is uh, richer and uh, because you roasted it uh, deeper in, in flavor than the industrially produced, but surprisingly decent uh, box stock. Right. And, and for something that's in between those two things, yet also uh, dead easy to do, again, the Instant Pot is your friend. So uh, you can take uh, even just one chicken's worth of bones, put it in there with a bunch of water and the aforementioned uh, extra flavors, uh, put it in the uh, Instant Pot for an hour, walk away, and then you've got more stock than you could possibly fit in your freezer along with other, the other things that, that we're talking about here. Uh, the, the next magic weapon... I'm going to propose that you can use in all sorts of different things and and uh, kick them up uh, more than one notch is to roast a whole bunch of garlic cloves. If you are like me, you can cheat by living in a city uh, where you're within walking distance of multiple little uh, family-run produce markets. And uh, in that case, you probably have already noticed that what uh, those places will often do is they will peel a whole bunch of garlics and put them in a little styrofoam tray with some uh, uh, wrap over it, and therefore you can buy uh, three or four uh, heads worth of uh, pre-peeled fresh garlic, and then all you have to do is put them on a I, tray. I think I recall the Heb market, the gigantic uh, grocery stores in Texas do that too. Places need garlic, man, and so, mm-hmm. because otherwise the annoying part of this is you have to peel a lot of garlic. Peel all the garlic, that, yeah. That, that is a hassle, but even so, it's still worth it, uh, and just fill an entire tray uh, full of cloves of garlic, have uh, a nice uh, layer of olive oil there for them to uh, make sure they don't scorch the pan, and then uh, keep a close eye on them. Uh, You want to cook them until they start to brown on the outside and until they uh, yield completely to uh, a knife or fork that you push into them, and then just take them in and put them in one giant plastic bag and then take out, uh, you know, six to eight of them at a time as you need them to put in... Uh, just about anything that uh, you want to uh, could add delicious roast garlic to, which is a whole lot of uh, things from uh, pasta to soups to uh, you can puree it further if you want to permeate the entire dish with the, the flavor of roast garlic. But if you like garlic, nothing better than that. And also, especially if you don't have to peel it, another dead easy way to make a, a whole whack of uh, flavor that'll last you a whole season or two. I, I think that uh, when you're talking about roasting and a thing that people sleep on for some reason is roast peppers. And a lot of people will make roasted red peppers and you can get cans of or jars of roasted red peppers and that's all good. But the poblano pepper, Robin, I'm here to tell you is put on this earth to be roasted and then have the roasted stuff tossed in the freezer for later. And the poblano pepper is great because it is zesty. It is a legit pepper. It's not like the the fake bell pepper. It's it, it's got some. So real, not one of these ersatz peppers. No, it's it's got some real flavor to it, and it's also sweet and earthy in a way that a lot of peppers are not. The many many peppers are astringent, or they have uh, the 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 fire is is their business. Poblanos are, are they're just here to love, Robin. They're they're the me of peppers. And so they they make great peppery bolsters for 
not just, you know, let's say you're making uh, Mexican charro beans, which poblano, roasted poblano peppers are a core part of, but almost any kind of Mexican-informed New Mexican cuisine is all about roasted green peppers as much as it is their amazing red peppers. Um, and although they would get very mad at me for not saying uh, hatch, I'll tell you what, the, the, the roasted poblanos are great in New Mexican food. Uh, they're great in Tex-Mex. They're great in even traditional Mexican food. And even if you're just making a Vietnamese uh, or Thai food, uh, any of the other uh, food that involves peppers, add some roasted poblanos to it. You'll deepen, sweeten, and earthenify the flavor, but they're not going to take it over the way that uh, that would be if you put, let's say, habaneros into it. Uh, they they just add, add, add warmth and delight. And uh, the trick about roasting poblanos is that you can roast them on, you know, just slice them in, in half and roast them in the uh, skin side up in the oven on a, on a big, uh, sheet of foil on a, on a baking sheet, or you can, uh, roast them over your burner, although you can't do a lot of them at once. So this is, that's not relevant. And then you set them in until the skin has begun to puff up and, and pop and blacken. And then the best part is you just toss them into a bag, a sealed bag. You wait 10, 15, 20 minutes. The steam that the poblano peppers generate will basically loosen their skin so much that you can just peel the skins off super easily. You don't have to get every single bit of it, but the skins are a little bitter after they've been uh, charred. And then the meat of the poblano, the delicious meat, is there, and it's full of roasty goodness with little bits of of sharp skin flavor. You chop that up, and you put that in a bag. And like your garlic, you can put it all in a, in, in one bag and then just scoop it out uh, with a little uh, measuring cup uh, whenever you think, oh, I need some uh, delicious roasted poblano flavor for this Mexican-derived or Southeast Asian cuisine that needs a little bit of a kick, but not a over. It's not about the pepper; it's about the the, the food. But the the pepper will will guide you there, and you can just toss it into any you know uh, bowl of beans or any uh, vegetable soup, and it's going to be great and and wonderful. Anywhere you'd use chopped up red pepper, um, you could in theory use uh, roast poblano pepper and get. Uh, it's not going to be the same flavor, but it it will. It will get along with the other ingredients just as easily. Uh, speaking of uh, flavor ingredients, uh, for those of us who are carnivores, some meats can be good ingredients in things. Specifically, you can tell me more, Robin. Yeah, uh, specifically if you uh, slow cook, uh, whether you're literally slow cooking it or again doing it in the instant pot, a uh, brisket or uh, a pork shoulder. Uh, you're gonna the first bit of that you're gonna want hot as your uh, main part of your entree. But the rest of it you can take and reserve in little baggies. Uh, how little? Up to you. I'm not the boss of you. But little bits of uh, delicious uh, meat that freeze very well and taste uh, delicious and maintain their texture are uh, those two pulled meats. Uh, and you can uh, use them as an accent in something that's uh, chiefly vegetarian, whether it's a pasta or a vegetable roast, and uh, just add a little bit of them in for a kick. And you also want to uh, reserve the juices into its own separate bag, which you can use for something that is a sort of halfway between a broth and a gravy. And so just set that aside, and then you can uh, defrost that and add that to I recently uh, got, had some uh, brisket juice from a meal that I must have made back uh, in the springtime or earlier, and uh, it became a, a lovely medium to put uh, some uh, gnocchi and some vegetables in and uh, uh, really added to the uh, flavor of that. And the, that sort of rich, deep flavor is uh, what I think really brings uh, comfort uh, now that we're uh, locked uh, in our in our homes, uh, both by the weather and by the uh, 
by the plague. Yep. Another flavor boost that is not, it's not as economical as, as it should be if, if the world were up, were organized correctly, but you know, depending is you take the rind of Parmesan cheese. Uh, and for this, you have to buy your Parmesan in an actual cheese, not in the form of grated fun, but maybe that's what you're doing now. And you're, and you're, uh, you're taking all the money you didn't spend at a restaurant or didn't spend going to the movie theater or the bar and you've, you've bought yourself a proper piece of Parmesan. After you've used it up in your, in your pasta, you take the rind, toss the rind in a bag in the freezer. Uh, you can keep all the rinds in the same bag and then take one of them out and put it into almost any soup or almost any stew. And it will give a delicious combination of salt and fat to whatever it is you're making. And I don't believe I need to tell listeners of this program that salt and fat are two angels that sit on the right and left hand of God himself. And does that mean God himself is sugar in the middle? Yeah. Yeah. That, that does mean that. In fact, that's an extra theological insight that I bet you weren't uh, looking for listeners. Um, and yes, you can also, if you uh, have a Parmesan rind, you can always uh, throw that into the stock you're making, uh, your chicken yep. or pork stock. And, and add a, a, a sort of a different kind of a, a fat than you get from the uh, animal fat that you are already going to have in your uh, in your stock. So at this point, I think that freezer is looking uh, pretty full, especially since I occasionally want to have uh, other things in there. Uh, so I think it's time to uh, close the freezer and close the food hut and then move on to our final segment. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to enter that most mysterious of huts, the hut with the ill-defined border, the hut that we may, uh, given our previous segment, have to rename. Let's hope not. We've, we've even got a t-shirt with this on it. It's the Elliptony Hut. And there over in the corner, particularly interested in this one, are the Grey Alien and the Nordic Alien. And instead of drinking kombucha, uh, they want to visit with an old friend and wonder whether they are uh, possibly of psychosocial origin or maybe ultra-terrestrial or both. Because we're here to talk, Ken, about noted ufologist, Jacques Vallée. Uh, he is still with us. He's uh, 81 at the moment. And uh, he's uh, one of these people who uh, proves that Renaissance men uh, didn't uh, stop being around after the Renaissance because he's definitely a, a 20th and now 21st century Renaissance man. He's a uh, computer networking pioneer. He was a venture capitalist for many years. Still uh, is, I think. Still is. And uh, as we'll po possibly get to more, he's uh, has has a deep 
series of leptonic connections, but he's mostly known as a ufologist. In 1955, he sees his first UFO as a young man, and, and that brings him eventually into the orbit of uh, Dr. Alan Hynek. And uh, Ken, I guess this is where you first of all explain who Hynek was and then move into a discussion of Jacques Vallée. J. Allen Hynek basically was the chair of the astronomy department at Northwestern University in uh, Chicago, uh, technically in Evanston, but in the greater Chicago area. Hynek began as one of the consultants to the Air Force on their UFO projects, on Project Sign and Project Grudge and Project Blue Book. And Hynek is sort of the father of the swamp gas explanation. He is a uh, not the... Uh, greatest debunker of all time, but he was the first great debunker of, of UFOs and a, and a stellar figure in many ways, also a real astronomer, as it happens, which so was our man uh, Jacques Vallée. And uh, Vallée had developed a informational space map of Mars by computerizing all of NASA's Mars data. Um, that was a big project that he sort of brought his computational expertise to. Uh, he'd worked in uh, computing astronomy in France and later on would say that he had seen the French uh, military destroy the tapes, the tracking tapes of an unknown satellite and that the satellite was rotating against the Earth's spin, which would have been impossible for satellites back in 1961. So Valet is already uh, having that productive overlap of his interests. Uh, that, that we see. And while he's in Chicago studying with Hynek, he picks up sort of the pro side of ufology in the sense of professional, not the four UFOs. And he studies the question with Hynek. He is, um, uh, pondering it. He's already interested in science fiction. He's already, as you say, seen a UFO. And he then goes to uh, work at Stanford. And at Stanford, he begins to spread out his uh, wings and not just uh, talk to the people who are inventing uh, ARPANET, which will become the internet. He's also talking to the people who are inventing EST and uh, the whole California gestalt and uh, working with the first earth battalion and the men who stare at goats and becomes a consultant at the very least on the project Stargate uh, CIA slash army remote viewing programs. Uh, because he's buddies with people like Puthoff and Targ, who are also at Stanford. Um, and it's at Stanford that he gets wired into the early Silicon Valley networks of people and becomes a venture capitalist and starts helping to put together funding, especially being sort of an ambassador to Europe for European funding for things like this. And so he begins to, uh, he continues rather to write books about UFOs. His first books are sort of, um, scientific breakdowns of the case for the UFO. And he's like, uh, my buddy Hynek says one thing, but here are the, the, the actual scientific facts on the ground about ufology and that they need right. to be answered by someone who's going to credibly debunk them. And, and so his first two books are sort of exemplars of the ETH, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Exactly. Which is that these are straight up mechanical craft coming from another planet full of people from another planet. Uh, but then, but then in, in, in 1969, he writes the book that I think probably changed my life. It didn't change my life in the sense that I go hunting UFOs. It changed my life in the sense that I said, Oh, UFOs. <laughs> 
Um, I was a well-brought-up child. I believed in UFOs and thought that they were terrific and wanted there to be uh, space aliens from Zeta Reticuli and all of that good stuff. So Valet was your fun ruiner. No, he was my fun expander. As I became a a, a man, I realized it was all nonsense and that the UFO was just a, a thing people talked themselves into. And then Valet publishes a book called Passport to Magonia. And Magonia was a mysterious land inhabited uh, it flew around in the sky over medieval France and people would come down to medieval France and say, oh, we're visitors from Magonia, the Skyland, and we're here to talk to the bishop. And Valet said, that sounds an awful lot like a UFO contact story. I wonder if UFOs, rather than being mechanical flying saucers built by little green uh, or gray men and Zeta Reticuli, are actually just a thing people have always seen. And once you ask that question, which in fairness, John Keel had already been asking in a more paranoid register that I had not yet encountered, it makes an awful lot of sense, Robin, because suddenly you don't have to arbitrarily exclude 80% of UFO data from your UFO study. You can say, well, it's all the same phenomenon. There's no reason that Barney and Betty Hill are any more credible than the guy in Brazil who saw a UFO who told him all about the Nazis. People are seeing things. And uh, given that we have literally zero evidence for the ETH hypothesis at its most rigorous. We have a few anomalous radar tracks, which again, if you know anything about upper earth, uh, meteorology, uh, upper atmosphere meteorology, you know, are maybe not that anomalous. Um, we have a couple of sightings by uh, military pilots hopped up on adrenaline, but we don't have an alien craft. We don't have even an alien foot. We got nothing. But we have a vast panoply of sightings going back to biblical times of stuff in the skies that messes with you and delivers messages. And that's what UFOs do. And uh, Valley, by sort of taking the what they call the psychosocial hypothesis out of the hands of a brilliant and paranoid uh, genius like John Keel and putting it in the uh, uh, dispassionate tones of a French intellectual, he made that psychosocial hypothesis, I think, the one to beat. And uh, when I read it, it was a real eye-opener for me. First of all, I learned about Magonia, which was great news by itself. And then also, it let me slot UFO experiencing into a vaster, better, more interesting part of the world, namely Elliptony. And, And he is sort of sort of gone around the the post a couple of times but basically his his great realization that you don't get to exclude ufo evidence for not meeting your theory when your theory itself has no evidence that's the that's the moment and then he also of course is as i guess we've alluded to kind of an elliptonic universal joint in that he knows everybody met everybody and did everything involving the the sort of the uh, institutional elliptonics, certainly in the United States and, and probably, uh, if, if I read French better in, in France, he's published his diaries, which are, uh, great reading, talking about how basically the crazy people in California drove him out of the field because they were too nuts. And of course, uh, when Ira Einhorn, who is his buddy and co-guru, uh, chopped up his girlfriend and fled to France to avoid prosecution, uh, after founding Earth Day, that sort of, uh, put a pall over his California Hermetica, as he calls it. And that's what we call folks a teaser for an upcoming segment. <laughs> um, and now, uh, like Keel, uh, he does not uh, necessarily argue or necessarily always argue, because as you indicate, he's shifted uh, perspectives a bunch of times that there's 
nothing paranormal going on. Uh, he says that there is a large component of this that is humans operating on humans, but that there may in fact also be some sort of unexplained ultra-terrestrial element, correct? Yeah, that um, there is a genuine, I mean, the, the UFO under his gaze contains genuine astronomical mysteries or meteorological mysteries. It contains a ecstatic experiential element, and it contains the Air Force screwing with people. And all of those things are true because you can't say that French government guys destroying tapes is a hallucination or, or a sighting or a, or like uh, people seeing devils. There's nothing more boring and quotidian than French bureaucrats uh, destroying some trash. Right. And uh, so that has to be part of the disinformation or it has to be part of uh, an ongoing channeled experience. Because again, once you take a position that there might be entities uh, that they might be demons, let's call the term or Magonians, uh, those entities may be in league with various elements of the government because assuming they really exist, there are really ways to contact them. Uh, and those ways go back to the, to the stone age, to shamanism and, uh, and things like that. And so there's no reason to assume that if the federal government is interested in the phenomenon, they haven't done the same research that Valley did, or they certainly read Passport to Magonia and started doing it. And he's worked with the CIA on, it certainly theories just as ridiculous. So you, you can't argue uh, that that would not happen. So he believes that you've got all those th three things, which I guess you can call one or another aspect of real UFO re. And then there is deliberate cranks and uh, charlatans, which is sort of the, the other aspect. And he thinks that uh, this sort of um, popularized Roswell Gothic uh, mythology is making it, weirdly harder to see the, the the fairies and demons for what they are and part as part of that he's broken down uh, all of the elements of the classic uh, uh, gray alien i see him perking up his non-existent ears as we mentioned his name uh, mm -hmm. as obviously illogical if you think of him as a literal visitor from another world because his anatomy is nothing that would evolve or is evolved for uh, space travel. Whoever is sending him is sending way more of them than they need to actually survey a planet. Same with their uh, uh, genetic experiments and their probings. That doesn't, that seems to make sense as something entirely different than an actual scientific procedure. They're, they're pretty dumb, weird, or perhaps just pervy aliens. If that's, if that's all they're doing. And again, that the, all of those things are much more explicable as a, a mythic experience or a mythic experience with an overlay of pop culture assumptions on top of that. Right. The, the, basically the theory being that if you can manipulate space, time and gravity, the way that UFOs apparently can, you are beyond the need for physical butt probing to establish knowledge. And that is about a human experience, not about an alien agenda. Or if the aliens are doing things, they are in fact being needlessly cruel and sadistic, which again implies though it does not, uh, I don't think it rules out as much as Vali believes it does, implies either a human or human reflective, and by that I include demons and fairies, intelligence operating. Right. Because because like, like Putin sending people out with uh, directed energy rays, the other explanation could be, you know, maybe they just like it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the notion that the, the, the Earth is, is galactic Nebraska and drunk alien teenagers come here to cow tip is one that I think makes more sense than most explanations. But certainly the, the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, 
is um, getting increasingly creaky and increasingly larded over with special exceptions. And all the parts that turn out to be physical evidence can be just as proven by secret Air Force experiments that they are deliberately leading the Russians on the primrose path away from. And uh, it turns out when a huge chunk of your anomalous radar tracks are the U-2 aircraft that the CIA was flying, so the Air Force could say, nope, there was no aircraft, it was the CIA's aircraft, the case for the ETH goes away, but the case for people seeing stuff is eternal, because guess what, Robin? People always be seeing stuff. Right. And so Passport to Magonia is uh, from 1969. Uh, Players of Fall of Delta Green will notice which decade that falls in. So do we even need to see more about that? That, I mean, no. I mean, the Valley can make a superb NPC. He's already uh, wired into the the, the Majestic uh, investigatory system because he's working with Hynek, and Hynek is working with Blue Book, which are the sort of uh, public face cover-up part of Majestic. So Valley can be a fellow investigator into Majestic with you. He can be a NPC. He can be a Majestic plant who is meant to spread debunking, but instead does as much as he can to indicate the the truth, which is that the aliens are not aliens as we understand them, but are from outside time and human experience. And that it is, does go back to fairy sightings because, of course, Lovecraft emphasizes that the Mego are the same as the fairies. And so maybe Vali is attempting a modified limited hangout with uh, Passport to Magonia, and he becomes a treasured uh, source for the agents who are trying to burrow into uh, the majestic cover-up and find out what's up with these UFOs. So is Passport to Magonia still the place to start if you're reading Vali? Um, He's written books more recently than that, but I don't think that uh, as good a book as, say, Messengers of Deception is, I, f- I feel like um, Passport to Magonia, even though it is a little bit clunky and a little bit obvious now, it's still so important a text that it's it's a great place to start. And certainly if you're doing Fall of Delta Green, it makes sense to read something that reads like it was written in 1969. Well, on that bibliographic note, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, to wrap up uh, this uh, this most capacious of hot before the fun ruiners force us to rename it the Directed Energy Beam Hut. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Supple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from directed energy attack by throwing up a backer shield alongside such heroes as... Matt Farr. Miko Araxanen. Thomas Vallejos. Drunk Boy. And Wayne Rossi. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>